Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Today we're talking about reproductive rights and communism with a focus on the Soviet bloc and China. There's some basis for how communists understood women, reproduction, and family limitation in Engels' writing, particularly in his Origins of the Family. This is mostly based on the idea that women should be emancipated from the exploitation of marriage and, per Marxist thought, that that would happen naturally after the proletarian revolution. But Engels also conceded that women's role in life was raising a family, and that she could only do so effectively if she was educated and politically active so she could raise valuable little comrades. This is not particularly different in some ways from the American idea of Republican motherhood or even the Nazi perception of women's roles in society that we discussed several weeks ago. But in these cases we're discussing today, it's also weird because in some ways communism is a very feminist theory, but in practice it was much more complicated, and even though Engels lamented the patriarchy, he never actually explained what reproductive rights women should have or what that would look like. So communist leaders like Lenin, Stalin, and Mao adopted reproductive policies of their own and mobilized communist rhetoric to achieve their eugenic goals. I'm Marissa. And I'm Avril. And we're your historians for this episode of Dig. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. In 1921, after the Bolsheviks defeated the White Army in the Russian Civil War, Vladimir Lenin, leader of the Soviet Union, legalized abortion. In theory, it could be free for anyone, but in reality, there was a fee imposed for most abortions. From the beginning, it was a temporary measure, understood as an effort to address the economic situation created by a decade of war, revolution, and civil war. And because it was understood to be temporary from the start, it had an expiration date, determined by Lenin's successor, Joseph Stalin, in 1936. In that year, the state declared a sufficient change in the economy to allow Soviet women to live in a world free of the need for abortion. This was helpfully called the Decree in Defense of Mother and Child. And through that statute, the Communist Party banned abortion in all cases, except when a mother's life was in danger. 
This was quite problematic in the urban centers of the USSR, where women relied heavily on state abortion providers. With the collapse of that system, they were forced to rely on the dangerous back-alley abortion. From the start, legalization had little to do with women's right to choose. In many ways, legalization had been an effort to circumvent women's use of the babki, uh, which are lay midwives, and znakarki, which are sorceresses the traditional abortion providers in much of the Soviet Union. The state was particularly concerned that these providers conducted abortions in unsanitary, life-threatening conditions. So justification for legalization was to provide clean, sanitary abortions. Um, from 1920 to 1936, fees for abortions were on a sliding scale. Only the poorest workers and peasants, unemployed wives of Red Army soldiers, and women who were disabled on the job qualified for free abortions. They introduced limitations on abortion in 1924 because the goal was not to encourage a limitation of births. Um, a large population growth was important for rapid industrialization, so they wanted that. They didn't want to encourage abortions. Um, but they didn't want to make them illegal either. Mm -hmm. For Slavic women seeking abortions outside the urban centers with state-run providers, there were still numerous back-alley abortions. Plus, doctors turned away women past the first trimester who had one of several potentially dangerous or medical conditions or were pregnant with their first child. Women suffering injuries from those babkis and snakarkis filled the gynecology wards of rural clinics. Ultimately, the continued use of those alternative abortion services became a reason the state used to recriminalize abortion in 1936. Even when abortion was legal, it was not fully embraced everywhere in all parts of the Soviet Union. Because we have to remember that the Soviet Union was a very diverse place, encompassing many... And very large. And very large and encompassing many different cultures and language and ethnic groups. Not just the Slavic people um, who we sort of associate with it because those are the Russians. In Kazakhstan, for example, abortion services were only used by Slavic women, though there seems to have been some acceptance um, in the Kazakh population uh, that they used ab herbal abortifacients. The state-provided abortion services were considered taboo by Kazakh women, um, and Kazakhs, of course, were a Turkic Muslim people, traditionally nomads, who were forced into the Soviet Union in 1921 by the Bolshevik army. And so, for example, the Kizil Orda Municipal Hospital in Kazakhstan, um, only about 0.002% of abortions in 1928 were performed on Kazakh women of uh, about 2,000 cases. Um, still, the number of abortions in the country rose generally in Kazakhstan, as elsewhere in the Soviet Union, um, from 582 in 1925 to 6,127 in 1928. But other ethnic groups, particularly Slavic women, accounted for those numbers. After abortion was recriminalized in 1936, doctors were required to submit written authorization. These decisions about whether a woman could or could not have a legal abortion were recorded in official state documents. Monthly evaluations were forwarded to the public health department with a copy to the regional public health department. Women who checked into hospitals and clinics with symptoms of back-alley abortions were referred to prosecutors for investigation, and doctors who performed non-medically necessary abortions were subject to prison up to three years. So really, they were cracking down on potentially criminal um, abortions, because again, the only abortions after 1936 that were legal were when the mother was in, was in um, jeopardy. Yeah, her life was in jeopardy. So we see then... 
under Stalin's regime in the 1930s, a real shift from legalized abortion to a real hardcore pro-natalism, in fact. Um, so, for example, uh, going back to Kazakhstan, the abortion recriminalization led to huge jumps in birth rates. Um, it's estimated a 25 to 30 percent per year jump from 1936 to 1939, which of course required a huge increase in spending on maternity. And this is funny because um, every one dollar spent on family planning initiatives saves the state seven or the, the federal the government. Taxpayers. Se- yeah, taxpayers, seven dollars. I mean, this clearly um, sort of suggests that. So for example, in, in the Kazakhstan's case in 1935, 9.7 million rubles were um, were dedicated to maternity spending, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and including providing for children of new mothers. Um, so that was before it was uh, abortion was recriminalized. 1936 that jumped up to 17.8 million rubles, almost doubled, almost doubled, and then by 1937 doubled again. 38 million rubles spent on maternity pro- providing for mothers and in lieu of providing abortions mm-hmm. and that's in part because each mother received 2000 rubles per year per child up to the age of 5 and one year after this pronatalist program was announced 7018 mothers in rural Kazakhstan applied for financial assistance and this doesn't even represent all the mothers who were eligible as that information trickled slowly to the more rural parts, the, the information about the pronatalist program trickled much slower to the more rural parts of the Soviet Union, to the impoverished but also illiterate women. The pronatalist program was accompanied by an extensive propaganda program, largely an- emphasizing anti-abortion ideology and the importance of Soviet motherhood. So going back sort of to that uh, Leninist producing good comrades, right? Right. This uh, was conveyed through, for example, happy motherhood stories in the newspapers. Um, so one woman, Evkoya, and I apologize in advance because we don't speak Russian. Um, I should say not in advance, after the fact. <laughs> I apologize now before I say these things. Evkoya Petrovna Balbanova, a Russian woman who was living in Kazakhstan, she received 4,000 rubles to help raise her eight children. And she was quoted in this paper as saying, No, my biggest job is to raise healthy children. The possibility for it exists. I will be receiving 4,000 rubles and I will spend it exclusively on my children. Thanks to Comrade Stalin for the concern with which he surrounds us. Happy mothers that we are. Ridiculous. She sounds um, like she's on drugs. She, she sounds like she's... <laughs> Afraid of being put in the gulag. Um, so Kazakh women had, a, on average, in fact, more children than Slavic women. So they were often used as the shining, happy example of I- the ideal um, Soviet motherhood. Um, so that's not to say that illegal or uh, that abortions stopped right after it was recriminalized. Obviously, illegal abortions continued well after recriminalization. Um, just for example, uh, in 1942. There were 1,675 uh, abortions that were deemed criminal. and That was 15% of all abortions performed that year. Yeah, 15% of all abortions. And those are just the people who got caught. Right, um, right. And that increased every year from, from 1942 to 1948. We have a, we have a, um, this is just in Kazakhstan. We have a, a table that we will um, post in the show notes. And it also shows the percentage of criminal abortions that were prosecuted, and the numbers are actually pretty high. Um, for most years, somewhere in the 80s, 80 percent 
of criminal abortions that we know about were actually prosecuted in courts. So even and even though they're being prosecuted at really high numbers, they're still increasing every year, which goes to show that no matter how much you try to make an example of women who uh, seek abortions and get abortions or the doctors who provide abortions or the bobkeys or whatever, that women are always going to do it. Yeah, well, apparently so. Yeah, that's just, <laughs> that's just evidence there. Okay. So the Soviet Union re-legalized abortion in 1955 after Stalin's death. And we'll see something similar to this when we talk about China as well. Um, a lot changes after Mao dies. Mm. Um, they resuscitated that 1921 statute, making abortions free of charge up to 12 weeks gestation. Abortion was a convenient way of family limitation because other birth control methods were not reliable or were difficult to obtain, or women simply didn't really know about them. For example, in the Ukraine, there were very few family planning centers, and Ukrainian women could only obtain birth control information from gynecologists. Gynos rarely prescribed female contraceptives. IUDs were perceived as harmful to women's health. Oral contraceptives were imported from Hungary and Czechoslovakia, were um and but these were but these were high dose and had really intense side effects. It wasn't until the late 1960s that some gynecologists started providing info on different contraceptive measures, and even then it was generally limited to women aged 30 to 55 or who already had two children. Also, the Soviets made condoms that were of very poor quality. Like just, so many other like, consumer products of the Soviet Like <laughs> all, what do you mean? They're not good at producing things? No. Um, also, in different parts of the Soviet bloc, including um, Eastern European countries that were associated with them, even loosely, uh, like Poland, Czechoslovakia, and East Germany, um, there were different attitudes toward birth control and abortion. For example, Poland versus Russia. In Poland, it was legal for women to get an abortion if they were experiencing, quote, difficult living conditions from 1956 until 1990. After communism fell, abortion access was then restricted. In 1993, the state removed the um, difficult living conditions clause from their policies so that no longer was a grounds for a legal abortion. Now, um, abortions were only available for for women whose health was threatened by pregnancy, cases of rape confirmed by a prosecutor, or if the fetus was seriously or irreversibly damaged. There are few official figures on abortion in Poland. Although it was common knowledge that women in Poland had abortions, they were and that they were readily available. As one survey of polls in the 1980s showed, uh, 72% believed that women would seek abortions regardless, and so better to have them safe and legal. Surveys in Russia in the 1960s and 1970s indicated that abortions outnumbered live births. The Soviet Union discouraged abortions, but after 1955, never again tried to criminalize them. Wow, that's interesting. So more people conceived in and got abortions, then conceived and gave birth. Again, because the access to birth control was so limited. Right. That kind of like when we talked about Japan yeah. in the 20th century, um, the the only option for a lot of women was abortion. Because right. those were state, you know, regulated, so that was a safe option for, for family limitation. Right. So now we're going to shift gears and talk about China for a little bit. 
for a lot of it, for a long time. (laughs) So in 1935, the Chinese criminal code made abortion illegal unless the pregnancy threatened the mother's life. And the Chinese Communist Party generally agreed that abortion should be illegal and made it so in all territories under communist revolutionary control between 1931 and 1948. Communist China was founded in 1949. At first, the communist Chinese government had a pro-natalist policy. They wanted all the babies all the time. And they instituted child subsidies and they limited access to contraception, also limited access to abortion and sterilization. And when I say sterilization, I mean, I don't mean, I don't know, I guess that has a very negative connotation, I feel like. But I mean sterilization that's, you know, just getting your tubes tied or... Right. Or or, your vasectomies. Yeah, right. sterilization. Right, it's just surgical contraception is another way to say it, is all I'm saying. That's probably less scary. Yeah, I don't know. Sterilization just sounds like very permanent. Well, especially after we talked about fascism and Nazis. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) right. Um, Here are Mao Zedong's word on the subject. Quote, Each time the Chinese overthrew a feudal dynasty, it was because of the oppression and exploitation of the people by the feudal dynasty, and not because of any overpopulation. It is a very good thing that China has a big population. Even if China's population multiplies many times, she's fully capable of finding a solution. Even if China's population multiplies many times, she's fully capable of finding a solution. The solution is production. The absurd argument of Western bourgeois economists like Malthus that increases in food cannot keep pace with increases in population, was not only thoroughly refuted in theory by Marxists long ago, but has also been completely exploded by the realities in the Soviet Union and the liberated areas of China after their liberation. Revolution plus production can solve the problem of feeding the population, end quote. So one of the biggest arguments for um, limitation of China's population was that they didn't have enough food or they weren't going to have enough food. Right. Um, And this really comes, this is called the Malthusian theory that, that population reaches a certain critical mass where there's just too many people and not enough food. And then famine happens and everyone dies. Which is an 18th century idea from Thomas Malthus. Malthus. Yes. Um, Yeah. And I mean, obviously uh, Mao didn't actually pay attention to early Soviet policies because in fact they understood that, the stresses of war and access to food was a reason for abortions from 1921 to 36. That's fine. But not for now. But not for now. So Mao's denunciation of Malthusianism as a European capitalist infected ideology continued to delay China's efforts at family planning until his death. The party's far-left members continued to be suspicious of family planning because of its connection to Malthusianism into the 1970s. Both Sun Yat-sen and Chiang Kai-shek before him, before Mao, had argued that a large population was necessary for China to maintain national autonomy, presumably from Japan. China has a long tradition of pronatalist policy. Most Chinese emperors or most dynasties insisted on constant demographic growth. So they saw a large population as an asset. Mao Zedong was really quite traditional in this sense. Social scientists approached Chinese leaders several times before and after the Civil War with concerns over or with concerns about overpopulation. Most sociologists trace China's problems to its overpopulation, problems like food shortage, poverty, um, low health and education standards. But they weren't taken seriously until the second half of the 20th century. 
The Communist Party of China's newspaper, it's called the People's Daily, wrote, quote, while imperialist and capitalist states furthered birth control, socialist and democratic states promoted childbearing, end quote. Thus, in the early years of the Communist Republic, early marriage and extensive procreation was what a good comrade did. Abortion and contraception were taboo and extremely limited. So for one, just one example, in 1950, military and government families living in Beijing were required to obtain written consent from their husbands, the husband's superiors, her doctors, and her husband's parents in order to perform an abortion legally. Even members of the Communist Party of China had to obtain written consent from the Minister of Health. What did women think about these limitations on contraception? Deng Yingchao, who was wife to Zhou Anlai, who we'll talk about in a little bit, um, presided over the Second National Congress of the Women's Federation in 1954. She wrote to the State Council afterward, urging the party to consider improving access to birth control devices. She argued that contraceptives were in high demand among women cadres and that the regime was not meeting their reproductive needs. Due to the Communist Revolution, Chinese women were struggling to reconcile family demands with those of the economy and those of the party. Anticipating resistance, Deng attached an invoice for contraceptive devices that had been purchased by the USSR, presumably from Hungary or Czechoslovakia. Right, right, right. Um, she thought that knowing that if the party knew their idols had no objection to birth control, that they may be more willing to hear her concerns. But the USSR was pro-natalist in general, so for most... So for most Chinese political officials, this made birth control a non-issue despite popular demand. So she's trying to say, yeah, they're pro-natalist, but look, they, they have some birth control going right. on. It's definitely right. not out of the question. Yeah. And they were like, eh, it's not really, it's not a big issue right now. Yeah. Let's move on. Move on. Over the next decade, China was plagued by social problems that did indeed seem to vindicate the social scientists who warned of the dangers of overpopulation. A lagging food supply struggling universal education apparatus, and scarce land resources caused the state to relax some of its most stringent policies surrounding family limitation. In 1953, contraceptives and abortions were made available and legal under certain conditions. Rural areas were specifically forbidden from selling contraceptives, but urban areas sold contraceptives relatively freely. Sterilization was permitted only in very rare circumstances, one of them being if a family already had six children, oh God. and the mother acquired written permission from her husband, her husband's superior, and her physician. <laughs> Women's choice? <laughs> well, Ellie, that's more than, you know, her life didn't have to be in danger or anything. Right. You could just have six kids and say, I really don't want any more kids. <laughs> um, well, yes, I think... A lot of people would say that after, uh, <laughs> yeah, after six, six kids. kids. From 1956 to 1957, the state launched its first birth control campaign, and access to contraceptives and abortion became somewhat easier. Contraceptive surgery would be allowed if a comrade's fertility interfered with his or her work demands. Abortions that were not medically necessary were allowed, but only if the couple had four children or more. By the end of 1957, abortion restrictions were relaxed even further, allowing for legal abortions when women had proof of health problems or an unspecified excessive number of children. I think that's the, how they put it, just an excessive number of children. But Is that it, six or more? The policy doesn't say how many. Oh, it just, okay. I guess it's in the eye of the beholder. Mm. Um, the vagueness of this policy opened up access to legal abortion, but demand quickly outpaced supply, and for the most part, only coastal urban elites experienced unhindered access to the contraception of their choice. 
This was all without the Communist Party of China changing its official party line. In 1957, Mao Zedong started considering family planning initiatives, but his most direct suggestions were censored from public knowledge until decades later, mostly because he was unsure. Some experts waved overpopulation concerns aside, saying China could afford to grow by several hundred million citizens before overpopulation really became a nuisance. (laughs) So from 1958 to 1960, during the Great Leap Forward, which is that agricultural program um that you know that agricultural that program. big one yeah um mao put aside his concerns about overpopulation and rolled back family planning efforts pulling all family planning propaganda from the rotation mm. um instead the party decided to promote the idea that china was underpopulated and that more people meant more producers so there was this idea that I think Mao was just really torn. He thought, okay, well, I think he felt like he was torn between his loyalty to, you know, um, to Marxism Mm -hmm. um, and his loyalty to his citizens. Yeah. Then in 1962, the government was shocked to see a huge spike in fertility among its citizens. This sent them into another panic about population control at a time when the country was already experiencing fallout from the famine caused by Mao's great late forward agricultural policies. Approximately 30 million Chinese people died from starvation. Mao Zedong's rival Zhou Enlai began to promote family planning initiatives. And this is the, the husband of the woman that we talked about earlier with her um, discussion in the in the women's um, conference. Right. They were both pretty active in trying to promote family planning. And I think she is even celebrated as like the founder of Chinese birth control, which cool. is not exactly what happened, but... But she was a forerunner in the movement. Yeah, she was a force. Yes. Uh, he... Joe and Lai said, a large population is a good thing, but as we are the most populous country in the world, we already have plenty of this good thing. And if we let the population grow rapidly in an unplanned manner, it won't be a good thing anymore. For a short time, the party instituted more family planning initiatives, especially in urban centers. But efforts were always reluctant, halting and divisive for party officials. Women in Shanghai achieved the greatest level of reproductive rights, and the rest of the country trailed behind. In Shanghai, abortion was legalized in all situations. More health offices were open, and the state began funding contraceptive counseling. But these changes were not widespread or permanent. From 1966 to 1970, the Cultural Revolution put a stop to all family planning initiatives. Again? Yeah. The Cultural Revolution went a little later than that, but... Eventually, in the middle of it, they kind of got things together. Much like a decade earlier with the Great Leap Forward, the party's latest plan required all hands on deck. So once again, the party officially promoted population growth and pulled family planning propaganda. The initial push of the Cultural Revolution subsided by 1970, and Zhou Lai once again pushed the Politburo to reconsider family planning initiatives. In the past, contraception and abortion had always been regulated to the realm of health work. Health work was just not the party's priority. Joe and Lai instead framed plan- family planning as something that should be included in agricultural and economic policy. And that makes a lot of sense since obviously overpopulation was a strain on both of those things. Mm-hmm. 
This got Mao's attention and the attention of the rest of the Politburo. The tide began to turn once again. The party, however, continued to deny publicly that overpopulation was a problem until after Mao's death in 1976. They just couldn't reconcile their old communist ideas about the power of the people with family limitation initiatives, though they knew by this point that curbing population growth would be necessary. Nonetheless, in 1973, China launched its first anti-natalist policy. They were feeling pressure from the news media. As a way to finally address this overpopulation problem, the state improved reproductive education for women and couples and improved access to contraception and abortion services. They used propaganda to promote two-child families, long birth intervals, and delayed marriage. This campaign was the most successful so far, having the fertility rate between 1971 and 1978. And here, here we're talking about propaganda, not official state policy, right? So just encouraging a shift in the way that people think about family life. And they did also um, have some policies at um, that they promoted that were at local levels that were improving um, access. Mm-hmm. In 1975, the state ramped up the initiative yet again by implementing population targets and collective birth plans to be managed at the local level. So local officials were held personally accountable for achieving population targets. Chinese politicians put the food supply at the top of their list of reasons why birth rates needed to be drastically reduced. Only 14% of Chinese land was cultivated, so they had to feed many citizens with a very small area of agricultural land. Party leaders also had anxiety about finding employment for such a massive number of people, funding their education, and preserving the environment. So efforts to control families' fertility continued out of necessity. It took several years for the Communist Party of China to obtain reliable calculations of their population growth. It was not until 1978 that the state's statistical bureau realized that the Cultural Revolution had inspired a massive population increase. The truth was undeniable. This was a problem, and the party had to face it, and quickly. From this point forward, the Communist Party regarded overpopulation as a hindrance to modernization and the kind of economic development that they aspired to. It took them so long to address the problem that Chinese politicians often refer to their former waffling as, quote, a hard-to-correct historical mistake. In response to spiraling overpopulation problems and its perceived contribution to the economic crisis in the late 70s, the one-child policy was implemented nationally in 1979. Prior to its national implementation, it was being used experimentally in various provinces, um, so it was not an entirely new idea, but it became this national policy in 1979. In addition to the local planning and province-level targets, China also set up national population targets. They wanted a population of less than 1.2 billion and a population growth of zero by the year 2000. So this would mean that birth rates match the death rates. The state started the Family Planning Commission in 1979 to enforce the one-child policy and to shoulder some of the burden of hitting those national population growth targets. This was the first time that family planning was organized on the national level rather than at the local level in China. 
Even though there were national targets and the Family Planning Commission coordinated on a national level, local communes were still responsible for enforcing local growth targets. Stephen Mosher, a sociologist, did a study of a village at the Guangdong Pearl River Delta from 1979 to 1980 to shine some light on the methods local communes were using to hit growth targets. And, no surprise, they were coercive and awful. Um, These particular officials mandated mass meeting attendance and participation for all pregnant women, high fines for non-attendance, dismissal from their jobs as a result of their pregnancies, and forced sterilization and abortion, even in the third trimester of illegal pregnancies. So those first few things, it's like, they have to go to a meeting, they have to pay a fine. It's like, well, I mean, it's crappy, but whatever. And then it's like, and forced sterilization and forced abortion. Of In the third, third trimester. trimester. Yeah. <laughs> and then that is pretty terrifying. Yeah. But not all counties enforce the one-child policy in the same way. An American anthropologist studied another Guangdong County in 1980 and found that they imposed very few penalties for families with several children and even withheld fines for families who had only female children. How nice of them! (laughs) Um, By 1981, the same anthropologists were observing forced sterilizations and forced abortions in that same county. So the level of enforcement varied over time and space. But Chinese officials were generally supportive of the one-child policy. Deng Xiaoping said, in birth planning, we must definitely keep propagating that every couple has only one child. We cannot make concessions here. There is no hope for the four modernizations should this lever be broken. It is of major importance for the national economy. And in 1981, China created the State Family Planning Commission. Um, it's pretty much, it's it would be something like the Population Ministry or something would be a way to think about it. We don't have um, ministries here. We have departments. Well, I am a British historian, so <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> wow. No, just kidding. Um, so... China created the State Family Planning Commission to coordinate all national population control efforts. In 1982, China added family planning and population control to its constitution Mm. as a permanent national policy. So they mean business. That's pretty significant. Right. Uh, And a propaganda campaign naturally followed. The party decided to name January 1983 a propaganda month aimed at promoting the one-child policy and encouraging mass sterilization. Again, just surgical contraception. Right. One memo reads, We suggest that you combine the propaganda month with the implementation of contraceptive measures for married couples. In particular, one spouse of rural couples of reproductive age with already two children should be mobilized for sterilization. The only exception are persons successfully using IUDs for more than five years, those who will be beyond reproductive age shortly, who are sterile, or who belong to national minorities. We have to struggle for a complete sterilization of all target persons during this winter or in the next year. At the same time, we have to go all out to struggle for early abortions among women with pregnancies outside plan. Propaganda Month mobilized 1.37 million professional propagandists and 138,000 physicians and other medical personnel in order to meet these goals. Unsurprisingly, this very intense policy was deeply unpopular. Chinese men and women were feeling like their bodies were not their own. Their desires and hopes for their families were being destroyed by a government that just needed there to be fewer people. 
Hmm. It must have been profoundly alienating, I would imagine. I would imagine. One thing that is um, perhaps disturbing to me is the eugenic nature of um, China's family planning initiatives. In one of the sources I was reading, the author interviews a Chinese doctor named Ying Zhanghua, and this is in um, 2005 when the interview happens. When he asks her whether non-voluntary abortions and sterilizations are ethical, she first denied that they were ever forced. She claims, you know, when goaded by the government, people are just like, ah, okay, yeah, fine, I'll do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but then she added, quote, The mentally retarded and people with genetic diseases shouldn't bear children. The state doesn't allow it either. For them to have children is harmful to society, the country, the family, and the individual. End quote. So she had, she had no qualms about this. She was not ashamed that this was her opinion, and it seemed really obvious to her. Um, so is this a testament to the effectiveness of propaganda, or do the Chinese really think differently about reproductive rights? I don't know. I mean, I think I think her point is that she's thinking of she's reproduction. thinking of the national health. She's not thinking of yeah. the individual level. She's thinking of right. on the meta scale what is best for this already enormous population and the state and moving forward into a, a more positive future. Right. I mean, it kind of sounds nice. Sounds good. <laughs> it does, but on, again, on the individual level, like to have someone making that choice for you is devastating, right? For the person themselves, right? Unless you conceive of reproduction as a social, yeah, as a social thing, right? Instead of as an individual mm, choice, yeah, individual choice. If you think of it as a as your, you know, um, what you're giving to society, but it's hard to. I think it'd be really difficult to ever gauge that because if you did a survey of all the Chinese people, probably the ones who might feel differently would be afraid to say so because it would be counter to the official state policy. And then you could go to jail. Right. But we do actually have a few surveys um, from more more recent decades that show that most people wanted at least two children. Mm-hmm. Um, I think all the, the different provinces are were um, included in this study and most of them average between two and two and a half was the average number of children that people wanted. So most people were mm-hmm. wanting more than one. The years 1984 to 85 saw a relaxation in the enforcement of the one-child policy, and the, par- and the party's official opinion on the subject has continued to vary since then. But the one-child policy is still an official policy today. Recent iterations of the policy required that both parents be only children, and only then would they be permitted to have two children instead of one. In 2013, Chinese couples were told that they could have two children if only one parent was an only child. So you can see this is is varying across the the last couple decades. Um, Communist Party members and medical professionals seem to all agree that the nation's birth control policies are a good thing, as, as sort of suggested by the quote Marissa just read to you. Government officials and Chinese medical professionals deny that women are ever forced to have an abortion. They argue, like Dr. Ying, that almost always the woman is willing to undergo an abortion and or sterilization. I think it's also hard for Americans to understand the Chinese approach to reproductive health. We may see it as a deeply personal issue, while they tend to understand it as a social issue. Um, the desires of one should be outweighed by what is good for the rest. At least that's that's how um, Chinese medical professionals, at least, are thinking about it. Mm-hmm. An article I read put it very poignantly. Births and pregnancies can be, quote, illegal, while abortion is always legal. So this is in China 
pregnancies can be illegal, but abortions can't. Mm -hmm. While in Western countries, terminating a pregnancy is legally controlled to a greater extent than actually being pregnant. So you can just get pregnant all you want. You can't necessarily um, terminate the pregnancy. It's sort of an interesting flip-flop between the two countries, and it makes me think that maybe we just understand reproductive rights in a very different way. Yeah. Because in many ways, obviously, the United States is very pronatalist in the same way that the Soviet Union was up until 1955, even after 1955, encouraging births by, you know, we give tax credits for children. That's a pronatalist policy. And most European, most European countries are as well because their birth rates are lower than their death rates. So they're just suffering. Yeah, they have to be. Right. Yeah. I think it's also worth pointing out that oftentimes the turns in China's family planning policy is credited to Western influence. Um, First, they have been accused of westernizing too much once they started encouraging family limitation. Lately, they have been accused of letting American evangelical pro-lifers influence their abortion policies. When in reality, China encompasses both extremes on its own terms. There are pro- and anti-natalist elements of Chinese spirituality and society and obviously official political policies. Right. China's relationship to reproductive policy seems to have very little to do with their Marxist political ideology. Because even though they identify as communists this whole time, they have covered the whole spectrum of reproductive rights from women in the kitchen barefoot and pregnant all the way to no more kids, let's sterilize everyone and abort all the babies. Kind of, I mean, obviously the Soviet Union doesn't get that extreme with right. let's abort all the babies, but it certainly does waffle between, you know, let's make abortion completely legal and f- legal and free, right. right, to no abortions, pronatalist, hardcore. Right. Practical concerns in China, obviously, were the most motivating factors for them rather than ideology. Though they sometimes couch family planning policies in terms of communist thought, the motivation for implementing family planning policies was usually independent of communist theory. But the reason they got into this mess in the first place was a stubborn refusal to acknowledge that contraception could fit into their worldview in the same way that it could fit into the worldview of Anglo-capitalists or even Soviet right. Soviet communists. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons why the Soviet and the Chinese story, um, I think, is an important part of understanding the history of reproductive justice is um, that it doesn't, I think when, when we say reproductive justice, people think that this means, um, this is like a super modern feminist term and it means access to abortions, free and accessible contraceptive, contraceptives and contraceptive education and things like that. And, and it does mean all those things, um, but it also means the freedom to have kids if and when you want to. And I think that all too often um, feminists seeking reproductive justice are labeled as antinatalist or pro-abortion. Like they just don't want anyone to have kids. Right. Or they want everyone to be able to kill all the kids. It's just, it's very, they're, they're cast as very so far left that it's like horrifying and almost yeah. violent seeming. Um, when really what they're advocating for is bodily autonomy and reproductive choice one way or the other. Yeah, which it, it means all the same thing, right? choose to use your body to have children choose to use your body not to have children that's just that's the point right right and in these cases uh, whether abortion is illegal or whether it is forced 
as a family planning um, ideology. It's it's taking away that 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 bodily autonomy. Right. It's taking away that choice. Mm-hmm. And and maybe that whole idea of bodily autonomy is a very sort of like Western Anglo way of thinking, this mm-hmm. individualism sort of thing. Maybe it's really hard for us to get outside of our own heads and yeah. think of reproduction as a collective activity. Yeah. Um so I mean it might but it might be worth thinking about but when you're when yeah. you're considering the the ethical nature of these things. You can also equip your favorite quotes on Twitter, follow us, and tag us at dig underscore history. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, help us reach new listeners. Leave us a rating or a review or and a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play or wherever you are listening. As always, you can find the complete transcript and bibliography for this episode at digpodcast.org. So, yeah, thanks for listening. Bye! Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Averill Earls. Thanks for listening.